the whistle and a go on my old guitar cell tickets. Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. My name is T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, C.D. Wright. C.D., thanks for coming. Thanks. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I w- I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled and delighted and all, all that <laughs> jazz. Uh, this, this conversation is pre-taped, um, so uh, anyway, we're coming at you, but not live this time, but the next best thing, right, CD? That's right. <laughs> uh, and before, before we go any further, I'm going to read a brief bio to, to kick off here. CD Wright lives outside of Providence. She has published a dozen collections of poetry, most recently, Rising, Falling, Hovering, and Like Something Flying Backwards, New and Selected Poems. Rising, Falling, and Hovering is new from Copper Canyon Press, and Like Something Flying Backwards, New and Selected Poems is out in Britain with Blood Axe. She's married to poet Forrest Gander. Both are on the faculty at Brown University. They have a son, Brecht. And Breck just called, actually, oh, Breck just a moment just ago. <laughs> he was trying to get in on the radio. Gig. I've never gotten past the point of not being afraid not to answer a call from Breck, because I never know what he's, you know, bail me out, Mom. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> well, certainly in the new book, In Rising, Falling, Hovering, there's many a time where I just think, oh, good Lord, because, you know, you, you said he joins a, a fight club, uh, like an underground fight club. He's an edgy boy. <laughs> I wonder why. Yeah, I don't know. Where'd that come I don't, from? I don't know. Forrest and I take turns blaming each other, but <laughs> he's uh, but he's fine. He's he's a junior at Skidmore, and he's just edgy. Mm-hmm. You know. But and now you know he can protect himself. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> when he's cornered in an alley, or you know, there was a litany of moments that he he listed off to you at one point, right? The reasons That's true. to take. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we thought he was going to drop out of school and join Cirque du Soleil about two <laughs> months ago, and and then he went back to school, and once again we started inhaling and exhaling on a more regular, a regular pattern. Th- yeah. <laughs> Well, that's good. Circus Soleil. I mean, maybe that's af- a little like after graduation. We just like to get that tree off the road first, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> get that tree off the road. Well, um, well, CD. But to to sort of kick us off, I was I've been reading your your book, Cooling Time, an American Poetry Vigil, which was a a great experience because I almost felt like I was having. Um, like a, a, a pre-conversation before this one mm-hmm. with you. Okay. Um, so so hopefully you remember everything you said in cooling time. <laughs> As if it were no, yesterday. I'll probably contradict everything I said in there now. But And you even actually, there's um, a, a, a footnote where you say, well, by this point, I find myself agreeing more with Silliman about many things. So perhaps he's changed his opinions on this as well. Like you uh-huh. do footnote uh-huh. it. Um but this was this is a wonderful book, which uh, now I feel like much loved. And and how you begin it is uh, is an op-ed, where but it seems like a manifesto of sorts. It is sort of yeah. I'm th- I can, I'll stand by that passage. You will yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll read some of it later, and we'll hear. Um, is it true you'll read us a few poems from Rising, Falling, sure. and Hovering later sure, sure. as well? Will that be the debut or, of uh, reading from it? I just read from it in Ireland, so 
you know, you've been traveling. I've uh, been traveling. A lot. So, so it'll be the United States debut. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. yes. Living writers. <laughs> yeah. I just I just got this first copy, and they, they had copies there. I was pleased. So they've been drop shipping them from the printers, I guess. Over to, and and so you were in in Ireland. Was that for a festival or? It was a festival. It was they were mostly Irish poets. There were a number of English poets. They weren't English-born poets. There was an Iranian. There was a Hungarian. There was an Indian. All of whom live in England. And the others were Irish, except for there were three, four Americans. It sounds like it. That sounds like an international festival of poetry because you you were also in Libya and you thought that was going to be <laughs> I thought that was going to be international but that was four american poets and 40 libyan poets so, <laughs> so, so it's nice to bring the international flavor of america to libya in yeah. a non bombing format that's yes <laughs> yes we weren't there to carpet bomb we were just visiting that was interesting and so you really you're you're on is that is that a typical sort of because I was surprised I was thinking you had um, the the only trip that you would have before this Ann Arbor trip mm-hmm. was Libya and, and in the last a few years I've been traveling s- somewhat intensively. Um, why why is that? Is, I think um, one I forget how far in advance I've said you know yes to something and then by the time it creeps up on me I've said yes to more things than I can really manage and um, it just maybe my profile has changed somewhat and I've been invited to more international affairs um, so profile does well, that mean how I mean, the world sees you? In recent years I think my work um, most of my travel was domestic and my audience was pretty much exclusively domestic in the last four or five years I've been traveling to other countries and I it may have been accelerated a little bit by the blood axe book um it may have just been time like the natural rhythm things started the writing started traveling more and does that mean that you will be Will you be working in collaboration with any artists in other countries that would be translating your works? Is that they f- do you for any kind of uh, at festival? There's some translation that goes on, and then usually there's some publication that goes with the translation, and then sometimes depends upon the the writers that you meet and the kind of um, conversations you have there. Other kinds of work gets translated, but it's not as if someone has sort of. Um, like there hasn't been a relationship that started where it may be a, a poet and, well, for example, Libya approached you and said, well, we could work in. No, that ha- I mean, with Mexico, it's more like that because I know more Mexican writers. And so there is more of a relationship there um, and more translation. So, so that would be OK. Well, that's because it seems like you you. Uh, for your your working life in poetry, it, mm-hmm. it seems like you um, collaboration has been uh, 
definitely a big component um, with, with Deborah Lester. That I mostly collaborate with Deborah Lester, phot- the photographer. photographer. Yes. Right. I mean, I also, I generally use um, a photograph on my cover, and I generally work with a photographer I know for a cover. And that's either Deborah Lester or Denny Moores, who's a Providence photographer. And also this painter. Because I was wondering the, at first if these were your, your paintings. Yeah, the painter was... Uh, um, On cooling time, I should tell the listeners. Right, Douglas Humble, <laughs> who works at uh, Marfa, Texas, for the Land and Foundation. But most of the time it's a photographer. And, and is that... Well, in, in cooling time, uh, why is that? Why, why, why do you work with a photographer, the still pictures? Um... You know, I think our heads just crack along the same lines. Uh, We've been working together for about 12 years at least, and we've done a number of small projects, and we've done a few large-scale projects. Um, The last big project we did was a prison project. One Big Self. One Big Self, um, where she was photographing at three prisons in Louisiana, and I started visiting the prisons with her when I could. She was living, she lives in Louisiana, so she was visiting the prisons regularly for a year and a half. And That's a long time, isn't it, to be uh, sub- s- sort a, of submerged in that, that? It was a very big project. I mean, she photographed about 1,500 inmates, and that means she's taking probably at least, you know, 36 images of each inmate. Um, and she was using, um, you know, uh, uh, um, antique, you know, technology, and she was mm. printing them on aluminum, gesso-treated, or not gesso, but some kind of light-sensitive co- coating on the aluminum. There's and so much depth in, in that way of producing, because the layers are almost even maybe subconsciously visible to us, whereas in digital photography it doesn't... They're very rich. It. They're really rich. But that was a big project. And now we're, we'll, we'll be starting a new project pretty soon. And in the meantime, I've been working on another project, and I got her involved, but in a kind of modest way. I'm probably just going to use one image, but I'm probably going to have her manipulate that image so that I use it, you know, rep- repeatedly throughout the text oh so that's so that's a book-length project mm-hmm. that you're thinking of right doing. Mm-hmm. and and what was the other project that you mentioned the one that we haven't done uh, yeah <laughs> Is that we a haven't trip? even really articulated it yet we've made a few little forays but it's not far enough along to you know it would disintegrate as soon as I started talking about it. Oh, okay. I get this right. at, the, at this stage. Yeah, yeah. don't. Yeah, it wouldn't hold together. <laughs> like the mirage on the road. Just yeah, that's like, right. Let it be there. Don't right. <laughs> talk about it. Okay. Well, maybe another time. Maybe if we if we have another conversation, okay. maybe it'll be. Because um, yeah, I had to laugh when um, I saw that you both even you and Deborah, if you've had such a, a long. Uh, a relationship you both even took mime together <laughs> or did you just throw that in to be no, like no we did we are took you mime attention? together for a long time I mean, we've done we've done a lot of things together a lot of you know and road trips uh, road trips uh, for one fantastic road trip through north south carolina and northern georgia visiting outsider artist um, so that was project based is that something that when you that you had this idea of what the what you wanted from the work or like an inkling of it and then you put the framework of this trip onto it she had an inkling and she had a kind of um 
her idea this was a book that became deep step come shining um she never developed her images from that suggested um inkling <laughs> or that trip um that's strange isn't it but uh but i ha- had a very serendipitous manuscript from that that trip and i used a photograph of hers from another project we did together on the cover of that book yeah that is a haunting image actually it's, that, it gets it's sort of imprinted upon the mind all right, that's the woman wearing a necklace of dead hummingbirds. It does stick with you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> I know sometimes I do wish we had some visuals we could beam out to everyone, but then again, it wouldn't be the magic of radio that's right. that we're creating here with our voices. <laughs> oh, man. Well, um, let's take, CD, let's take a short break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Living Writers, and today on the program, CD Write. The beast in me Is caged by frail and fragile bars Restless by day and by night Rants and rages at the stars God help the beast in me The beast in me Has had to learn to live with pain And how to shelter from the rain And in the twinkling of an eye Might have to be restrained Sometimes it tries to kid me That it's just a teddy bear And even somehow manage To vanish in the air And that is when I must beware Of the beast in me That everybody knows They've seen him out dressed in my clothes Patently unclear If it's New York or New Year Welcome back. If you're just joining us, tuning in, C.D. Wright on Living Writers. Thanks for being here, C.D. Thank you. It's so it's great to beam across our table at you, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> with our uh, directional mics. Okay. Well, um, as sort of a, a biography-related question, um, 
I was wondering, you, when you wrote about how when you were when you were starting out, when you were in school, you're uh, a young poet or no, a young woman. You you wanted to. You knew you wanted something. You knew you wanted to be an American artist. Mm-hmm. That's pretty. I know that's so general, but that is what I. That was my yearning, you know. I want to be an artist. I don't know what kind of artist. (laughs) Yeah, how did that come? Do you think, is that, like, natural then? Like, there's people who have that urge. Is it an urge to create? I guess I wanted to make up my own destiny, and everything else seemed so dreary by comparison. (laughs) So I went to law school, and I thought, I was right. It's dreary. Well, because your father <laughs> was the judge, right? So was that a natural... My father uh, was a judge and my mother was a court, court reporter. <laughs> um, but my dad said, you're going to hate it. So I said, I'm going to law school. So I went to law school and I said, I hate it. He's like, I told you, you're going to hate it. <laughs> so the judge I, right again. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, How long did you stick it out there before you were you thought, well, I don't need to... He was I went right. for a semester. Mm. And I had tried a number of things. I, I mean, I grew up in such a small town. There were so few resources in terms of what your options might be. It never really occurred to me that I actually could write. Um, I've never had access to anything like painting or photography. Um, I took French from a French war bride. So I had a little taste of of that, of something other. We. But um, so all the way through college, I sort of flailed along still thinking, what am I going to do? What's what's you know, what's going to be my what's going to be my shtick? What's going to be my, you know, what's my calling? Um, Were you reading a lot? I read read my whole life. I just Mm -hmm. ate books. And so it seemed inevitable that it would have to do with words. Mm -hmm. But I think I was really quite terrified of that prospect. Um, I mean, you know, my father said, you'll eat paper. But it wasn't that I was afraid of uh, poverty. It just didn't occur to me that that was to be a concern at that time. I mean, my generation, we sort of thought everything was going to be all right anyway. Um, It was... I was afraid of the commitment. I was afraid of the my own ignorance. <laughs> the, the commitment to writing. To writing. So, yes. so you did. So you did start thinking that it could be. I started writing. thinking in it, and the more I thought of it, the more I tried to avoid it. Um, and it was after it was really clear that it was not going to be a mime, and I was not going to be a saxophonist, <laughs> and I had never held a paintbrush. Uh, and I didn't know how to make movies, that um, I did have these tools that were readily available to me, That and I had always been completely besotted with language, that maybe that was really what I should gravitate toward. So how did you uh, make that leap into the commitment, if it was something you could palpably tell you were avoiding at some, or, or looking th- back, you can tell. Well, after after I quit law school, um, I started scribbling a bit, and I think someone suggested I, you know, find my way into some kind of writing program where there were other people also scribbling a bit, um, and that's what I did. And then as that was. The main thing that going to a writing program did for me was it sort of got me across that bridge. 
of, you know, what am I going to do? This is what I'm going to do. And, and seeing people that were using their lives completely to, to, to scribble a little bit. But so in seeing big, people that ways. were less fearful than I, who th- you know, thought that was going to be what they were going to do also. And I also met a poet whose writing was very powerful. Um, he had already dropped out of college, but his writing was very powerful and it was very persuasive for me. And that was, is that when um, the lexicon of language, where you felt the possibilities of, uh, okay, Le- uh, this is a quote from your book, Cooling Time, Time, lexicon known to the marrow of my bones. Is mm-hmm. that what you're referring to, CD? With uh, it must be. I don't. Uh, <laughs> is I mean, that it sounds on page seventy-two. Oh, right, page seventy-two. Yes, I met this poet Frank Stanford, who had uh, grown up in um, Memphis and then in the Arkansas Ozarks. Um, and he, t- yeah, he had that language down. He knew the idiom. He knew. Uh, both the idiom of the Delta and of the Ozarks, um, his language was almost exhaustive. And, exhaustive. Uh, and he knew how to shape um, that language into bona fide poems. It was thrilling for me. And he was my age. Um, so that really peeled my eyes. Because what kind of work, what were you writing at that time? Were you um, the unintelligible gibberish mostly? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it was a thicket of words, but it had no shape to it. And and did you feel like the the language you were using was language that had been already a, a part of like your a daily language, but more powerful, not in a a, a simplistic way? But or were you writing to the the way people were that you thought you ought to write was that well it was um you know it was um everything was thrown into the pot you know it was based on reading a lot of yates and reading a lot of dylan thomas and um reading you know modern modern english poets you know turn of the century poets taking um elliot pound seminar and then coming hard up against poetry of frank stanford and realizing, oh, probably it's more appropriate <laughs> to work in the language of your own time and locale than it is to continue to, you know, the East, Euro- the the European tradition, you know, one inch. Yeah, isn't uh, that an so, amazing epiphany, though? Yes, it was useful. It was bracing, but it was useful. And how did you come upon it? Because if he had already dropped out of the of the program, was it just a, a community? So you just happened upon each well, other. Well, he had or? already dropped out, but he was already a you know young legend, and and, uh, and he showed up at a party, um, and that was that. Yeah. I see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Lexicon known to the marrow of my bones. I thought that just was was great. Um, C.D., will you read us a poem from Rising, Falling, Hovering? No? Would that, sure. That would be okay. Like hearing your name called in a language you don't understand. Since the day the bell was cast, I have sat in the bishop's carved chair and waited my turn with my feet crossed at the ankles and the leather of my huaraches cutting into the hide of my foot. From where I was sitting, I watched the light being drawn off the magnolias in the Plaza de Armas, while the voices of the others choired in evening. 
I have risen to the lectern when the eyes of the host summoned. I face the great open doors as the faces of strangers acknowledge their own losses. I saw the white trousers of the vendor flapping in the dust, his body engulfed in balloons. The children selling chiclets dispersed. The shoeshine boy putting away his brushes, the sum of his inheritance. I have read what was written there, said Gracias, and sat down again. I have climbed the pyramidal steps and felt winded and humbled. I have stood small in Boracha and been glad of not being thrown down the barranca alongside the pariah consul of the celebrated book. In every sense, I have felt lonelier than a clod of clay, a whip, a bolsa, a skull of chocolate. I have been lured by the host pellucid face and the blue salvia where the rooster is buried. Though I have worn the medal of the old town with forlorn pleasure, I say unto you, comrades, be not in mourning for your being. To express happiness and expel scorpions is the best job on earth. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I love that that to to um, the 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 happiness and uh, expel scorpions. Uh-uh. Best job on earth. That's that's one of the ones I I scribbled down in my notebook actually <laughs> as I was as I was reading last night. And also I have stood small in Baracha and been glad. <laughs> 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 so good. Um, and and so with the the structure of this book CD, um, how you you start it with like a, a few poems that sort of almost preface. They come before even the title mm-hmm. page, seemingly, mm-hmm. um, and then they come later on within the book. The, like the the same title too. Mm-hmm. Is there um, is there a reason for that? Set up. I mean, obviously there is, but is there one that's interesting to to talk about? Oh well, let's see if I can make it interesting. <laughs> I've always been interested in the compositional whole of a book, um, and this book had a very long poem, a forty-five page poem, and I didn't want to front load it, and I didn't want to just put it at the end, and I didn't want to just stick it in the middle, so I split <laughs> it in half, <laughs> which actually followed the composition of the poem. I mean, there I wrote the first half of it and then I wrote other poems and then eventually I wrote another half of it. Um, so organic then, really. So in a, well, in a, fa- in a way it was. And uh, and so then I, I don't know how I worked out the arrangement of the other poems, but I wanted them threaded through it. Um, and there were a couple of companion poems in there. There was a poem called um, Like a Light at Your Back You Can't See But You Can Still Feel, and another one called Prisoner of Soft Words. I wrote two versions of each. I, I just enjoyed doing that. And, and that, I, they seem to create kind of um, counteracts to one another and also establish some kind of dialogue with the rest of the book. And the one, the, the Prisoner of soft, to soft, of soft Words? yes. I believe, if I'm remembering this correctly, that's the one where many of the lines are almost exactly the. the there's many sim- of the same lines. Right. And then there'll be lines that are completely de- that change the whole. Scope. Yes, in both in both of those um, two pairs of poems, they start the 
at least the first half of the poems are identical, and then they veer off in different directions. It was just trying to see where something would take you. Uh, it was a simple experiment. Mm. I thought it worked out all right, but I didn't want to do a whole book of those. I thought that would be <laughs> tedious. <laughs> I, I say do what you want. That's right. <laughs> you will anyway. <laughs> That's right. I mean, why else get involved in this whole enterprise, you know? <laughs> sort of the liberating quality of it is at least half of the joy of it. Yes, and, and to see what, what can possibly come next. And it is interesting to look at the, the pieces because you're saying also that um, – by making these very slight changes, it goes, it, and, it, and it's true. I can, I can vouch for it, having read it. It goes off the <laughs> rails does. as soon as you, t- you t- yeah, you just take a little spur, and then suddenly you're in a different world. And, it, and it's not as if you even, as a, as a reader, knew you were on the rails until you were off again. That may be right. Because you're almost convinced of the life of the first poem, which you've come to earlier, mm-hmm. and then you come to this um, later on, and it's sort of, it is, it's, it's almost like when you read um, the Lawrence Durrell's Quartet and you think you have the story of Justine and you know exactly what happened and then you get to the next novel and then you find out that's not at all what happened. That's right. <laughs> In the same time frame. Well. That, was part of the, that was part of why that was such a good reading experience. It's because your own expectations were sabotaged instead of fulfilled. Sabotage. <laughs> You're listening to Living Writers and C.D. Wright. We'll be right back. Well, I got a friend named Whiskey Sam He was my boonie rat buddy for a year and now He said, I think my country got a little off track Took him 25 years to welcome me back But it's better than not coming back at all Many a good man I saw fall And even now, every time I dream I hear the men and the monkeys in the jungle scream Drive on It don't mean nothing My children love me But they don't understand And I got a woman who knows her man Drive on It don't mean nothing It don't mean nothing Drive on Well, I remember one night Texting me Rappled in on a hot LZ We had our 16s on rock and roll And with all of that fire I was scared and cold I was crazy and I was wild And I have seen the tiger smile I spit in a bamboo viper's face And I'd be dead but by God's grace Drive on It don't mean nothing My children love me but they don't understand And I got a woman who knows her man Drive on It don't mean nothing It don't mean nothing Drive on It was a slow walk in a sad rain And nobody tried to be John Wayne I came home but Tex did not And I can't talk about the hit he got But I got a little limp now when I walk And I got a little tremolo when I talk Well, thanks to Johnny Cash for doing our musical interludes. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, You're listening to Living Writers, and today's CD Wright is here. We we just heard a poem from Rising, Falling, and Hovering, her latest book from Copper Canyon Press, 
out soon, right? CD when when will it's it be? It's basically out. It's just make. It's just well, it's in being Ireland. Out. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. it's out in Ireland. <laughs> it's just moving out of the you know from the printers into the distributors' hands and from distributors to wherever. So any moment now. Okay, and um, and while I'm on this, thanks to Jesse Johnston for for engineering. Hats off to Jesse. Um, all right, so <laughs> I thought I'm going to ask CD about this, <laughs> and, and she's going to say I am sick to death of talking about this. So there's a nice preface, right? Are you? Yeah, I'm really you, looking forward to this, <laughs> this question. Just, <laughs> it just keeps getting better and better. Right. This half of the program is going to be. <laughs> I think I just told CD in the in the break. Oh, we'll make this a. This will be the the fun half. We'll we'll talk yeah. about more about mime. <laughs> I'm like, but first, the miserable question. <laughs> no, actually, I I feel like from reading um, that a lot of times you're called upon to to be a spokesperson for form or structure to mm-hmm. kind of constantly be giving. Um, maybe even updated versions of how you, but maybe because, and I was wondering, is it because you feel, did you start that in, in the world, like talking about how that was a concern of yours? And because I know you, when you talked about a long poem, you said, well, then you need the structure mm-hmm. in some ways to add, like to support the length of a, like a book length poem or, mm-hmm. um, but then I was also wondering being at Brown, if, the, and that, that writing uh, program or place seems to have the, like the experimental as part of its mm-hmm. uh, a calling card of sorts. So is that uh, well? I think what am I saying, CD? No, right? Well, I th- I form was kind of a belated concern for me, actually. Um, and I mean, I just learned everything very slowly. It's almost like I realized what I. W- was learning almost after the fact. Um, you know, I might be developing a few more strategies or techniques, um, cultivating a few more devices, starting to, you know, play around with things more before I realized, oh, I really am starting to become preoccupied with with form and what it can do and, and, um, and what a significant value it is in this particular art form especially. Um, so I think it was, had to do with moving, you know, with just geographical shifts that um, in Arkansas I was concerned with the language and with maybe with cadence, um, not totally self-consciously, but to some degree with cadence. Uh, but then I moved to San Francisco, and uh, the time I moved to San Francisco, one, I was moving from a very rural environment to a very urban environment, and uh, maybe that's the great divide in American poetry, finally, is between urban and rural. And so I was up against people who were much more theoretical um, and were, who were uh, debating lots of issues about poetry, whereas I was not accustomed to those kinds of um, highly defined uh, arguments. And, um, and so I think it was exposure to the poets of San Francisco, San Francisco, particularly the language poets who were quite forceful um, and fairly organized, actually. Um, <laughs> so um, they almost sound brutish now, a little like <laughs> a 
the sluggers of the poetry they world. They were tough. <laughs> they were tough. Um, but it, that it gave me something to put my shoulder up against. You know, I felt quite resistant to what they were doing at first, but then I decided I was interested, and I'd just see what if they had anything I could use for my fire. Uh, in, instead of just uh, reacting, um, it took me a while to sort of take it in. But once I started taking it in, it was, became very interesting to me. Um, and I thought that, and then I realized the more I learned about just sort of the landscape of contemporary American poetry, I thought how, wherever you stood in relation to language poetry, um, the gr- glove had been dropped. You did, almost had to respond to it in some some way. Um, some people um, became almost reactionary with relation, you know, in relation to them. I, I just didn't think that was the response I wanted for my own writing. I wanted my own writing to open more and more. And also, I wasn't interested in joining their team, so it wasn't like I felt excluded by them. Um, I didn't, you know, that it was, uh, you know, I liked some of those people, but I didn't feel like I, you know, I really was from a different place um, and had very different assumptions that I brought to the table. But it definitely stimulated me. Mm. Um, So I carried that with me to the East Coast when I moved back east. Um, And there was, to some degree, a kind of... um, interest in the literary experiment at Brown University. It wasn't a, you know, consistent one, but it was definitely sort of there. It was in the air there. And, and what does, in, in regards to your own work, does the literary experiment, does that, is that synonymous with with opening the work outward to you? Is that what that would mean? Or? Well, I don't know what it means to me anymore. I mean, it used to mean to me that I needed to know everything that was going on, <laughs> and I needed to see what I could do about it, you know. But um, after a while, that kind of settles down, and it's... Uh, I, think, I think I have said that, the, you know, by any means necessary is the only directive I could follow. I mean, Malcolm X said it first, but and he had a slightly different agenda, but I sympathize with that um, you know, that particular directive is I'm feel, I feel very comfortable with that. So usually whatever, you know, if I'm working on a project or if I'm working on a discrete poem, that poem, that poem or that project determines how it goes. And it may be very, very accessible, or it may be a little bit more compli- complicated in terms of how you enter it. But for the most part, my in- own intelligence is pretty concrete. And I think even if I, you know, have a few swerves in the road, that it's nevertheless, it's you can stay on the road with it. Uh, it's kind of, which reminds me of, of something that you were were also saying CD about when you were reading a fragment of Sappho and and something that you were like poetry is giving spaces with the fragments they're they're I guess un- unintentional spaces if we only have pieces mm-hmm. of of them remaining but you said that's an idea of like a trust comes into it like like you're saying I, you, there might be a few swerves in the road mm-hmm. but you have like a, a trust in the the poem itself in your a confidence in your voice I think and then also 
some part of trust um, to the reader because you're saying that's what one of the I think are, is is that fair to say that's one of the fuels for poetry that makes it it's almost um, a living thing because the 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 reader must bring something into the spaces of poetry What's maybe some of the swerves that you mention or these spaces in the even the the fragments. Of Sappho. I have more confidence in the reader than I do in myself. I mean, I just, I think the reader will make all kind. It partly because we've been exposed to so much media in our lifetimes that we know how to make cuts and leaps and um, just we can do those things. We do those things with it's almost involuntary. Um, so I think you don't have to do everything in a completely plotting way. Um, and I, you know, I think the reader will track it or will lay their own tracks where some track is missing. And do you feel like then that's a conscious decision in the rhythm of the writing that because it's it's knowing what to include, knowing what to exclude from the pieces to have that that gift of space or that trust that's. Because, I mean, I don't even know if it's conscious. Like, I don't think I've ever thought before, oh, I'm I'm reading these poems, and there's some... I've, I've thought that there's something expected of me, but mm-hmm. I didn't really ever think of it in the way that there was some trust that had been extended to me. So there was... Mm-hmm. A well, I think that that is what animates it, is when you have engaged the reader to the extent that they are doing part of that, that it's active reading and not passive that's what completes the whole circle, you know. It's when the reader gets involved in it. That's <laughs> true. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, well, here's a leap for you. Okay. Um, I, I, I loved that uh, when you were talking in Cooling Time about um, V, about Mrs. My friend Miss Vitito. Vitito, yes. Right. Mrs. Vitito, or Miss. No. The unappeasable Miss Vitito. That's what's, wouldn't you, I'd love someone to say that about me. Uh, yeah, she definitely was. Uh, she died a few years ago, and uh, she was really my goomba. Um, and I have been trying to work on a, a, a manuscript about her. I really wanted to honor her. It was the honor of my life to know her. So she was an autodidact who just had read more than anyone I'd ever met. And um, the way she digested what she had read... Um, it was so alive, and you know, just at the those all the literature that she had absorbed, it was just came out of her pores. Um, and maybe she's the one who instilled in me the total romance of that, you know, the, of uh, of making literature that meant that much to somebody, um, and, the and of getting to try to do that. And, and the reliance on that and instead of the worry of what it could could necessarily mean or um, kind of like a career trajectory, but the reliance on that, like on making something that could mean this much to someone. Right. Because she, she didn't have an easy life. By she the, had the, the, a, a terrifically like, difficult life, and she also had, um, she was very ferocious about matters of justice. Um, and that was another one of the things that sort of got me going in the morning was how pissed off I was about everything. 
you mentioned rage <laughs> a few times. Right. So I, you know, I just identified with those two things about her, just how completely smitten she was with uh, language and also how furious she was about circumstances, for instance, in her hometown. And, and acting on it, too, not just being... Um, quietly furious in in the the walls of her home that's right then she stepped out she lost everything but she stepped out and had it to w- cross a bridge literally right it's, it is it's and you met her when you were 17 so i can only imagine that that was well you're saying it was pivotal. yes i was i was young and she was uh, about 37 then i think uh, maybe maybe 34 and she had seven children um, no money and uh, it was a very 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 racist town that she lived in and uh, after all the things that went down which were just sort of a standard procedure for what was happening in eastern Arkansas and in the rest of the Delta at the time in the late 60s she ended up eventually in um, New York City in Hell's Kitchen, and since I ended up in Rhode Island, I was able to continue to see her over the years. Every every once in a while, you'd check it. I know you said she was like walking with her in the garden across from her house was like um, being with Cleopatra on the barge. Right. People, people recognized her. Right. It was the first time she ever herself. lived in any place where she wasn't a freak, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Amen uh, to that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, people definitely um, were inspired by her. She was a very impressive person. So are you, CD. Let's, <laughs> let's take a break. We'll be right back. You're listening okay. to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, Living Writers. Why me, Lord, what have I ever done To deserve even one of the blessings I've known Why me, Lord, what did I ever do That was worth love from you And the kindness you've shown Lord, help me, Jesus, I've wasted it, so help me, Jesus, I know what I am. Now that I know that I've needed you, so help me, Jesus, my soul's in your hand. Try me, Lord. If you think there's a way That I can repay What I've taken from you Maybe, Lord, I could show someone else What I've been through myself On my way back to you Lord, help me, Jesus I've wasted it, so help me, Jesus, I know what I am. Now that I know that I've needed you, so help me, Jesus, my soul's in your hand. 
Jesus, my soul's in your hand. Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today, C.D. Wright here in the studio. Um, wow, with that, that end of Johnny Cash right there. <laughs> so let's have a poem. Would you have a poem for us? Let's okay. go right into the poem. I just opened to this uh, page in a um, selected poems called Steal Away. Song of the Gourd. In gardening, I continued to sit on my side of the car to drive whenever possible at the usual level of distraction. In gardening, I shat nails, glass, contaminated dirt, and threw up on the new shoots. In gardening, I learned to praise things I had dreaded. I pushed the hair out of my face. I felt less responsible for one man's death, one woman's long-term isolation. My bones softened. In gardening, I lost nickels and ring settings. I uncovered buttons and marbles. I laid half the worm aside and sought the rest. I sought myself in the bucket and wondered why I came into being in the first place. In gardening, I turned away from the television and went around smelling of offal, the inedible parts of the chicken. In gardening, I said excelsior. In gardening, I required no company. I had to forgive my own failure to perceive how things were. I went out barelegged at dusk and dug and dug and dug. I hit rock. My ovaries softened in gardening. I was protean as in no other realm before or since. I longed to torch my old belongings and belch a little flame of satisfaction. In gardening, I longed to stroll farther into soundlessness. I could almost forget what happened many swift years ago in Arkansas. I felt like a god from down under, Thonian. In gardening, I thought, this is it, body and soul. I am home at last, excelsior, praise the grass. In gardening, I fled the fold that supported the war. Only in gardening could I stop shrieking, stop, stop the slaughter. Only in gardening could I press my ear to the ground to hear my soul let out an unyielding noise, my lines softened. I turned the water into the joy-filled boy-child. Only in gardening did I feel fit to partake to go on trembling in the last light. I confess the abject urge to weed your beds while the bittersweet overwhelmed my daylilies. I summoned the courage to grin. I climbed the hill with my bucket and slept like a dipper in the cool of your body besotted with growth, shot through by green. Thank you, CD. Mm-hmm. And that was just a random one that you just opened. It just opened. <laughs> well, so it seems like that um, that you, in, in almost every, pe- that, that poem I think also shows this, that there's, there's, there's the, you can't ignore the the political in in anything, and there's this the struggle, um, which seems to be another word for love throughout mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. your work. And um, what is it? Is it possible to write poems that are 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 not love poems? Isn't that I don't know why <laughs> I did not plan on Probably asking that. Is. <laughs> but in some uh, some way, I think. I'm no, I don't know that I've ever been successful at this, but I think I always thought that what I wanted was a, a kind of integrated life, you know, that I had heart genitalia, that they all belonged together, that they were all part of the same system. <laughs> I wonder why you would even want that. <laughs> and uh, 
So, I mean, for instance, uh, uh, the political, I, if you think of it as not a subject but as an aspect of everything, then maybe it's easier to assimilate and not feel like you have to cut it off from the rest of your language. Um, just as the personal does not have to be altogether left out any more than you have to record every mood you, move you ever make. And, and even the idea of using gardening, that's, that's literally being connected to the earth. Yes, though it's just a metaphor in my case since I don't garden. <laughs> Busted. <laughs> right. I was convinced. I imagine myself a gardener, but it's not. <laughs> right. Well, I think that's equally good <laughs> to know that you have that imagining and to go to. Well, I think making it up is definitely still part of the picture, you know, that there's no reason why you can't make things up. There's a lot of things that are made up in that particular poem, especially the abiding metaphor. Um, well, that's that. I, I love that, actually, the um, because everything... Everything is illusion. Uh, I mean, even the things that we think are the most real. I mean, not that we can dwell on it too much, or mm -hmm. else we'll, we'll all go off the deep end. So I think it's a, a, a natural, a good thing to have the imagination be such a, a strong component in something that I was convinced of. That because it, uh, that you were saying the truth of what you were saying, I was convinced of that. Listening, CD, and um, and isn't that the case with poems? Like what we're talking, to, what we're what we're what we're writing and making. It's not that it's it's factual, but it's the truth. That's the effort. I mean, I don't try to avoid the factual. I just don't necessarily stick to the factual. Um, if I were writing a document, um, then I would want to go on record as accurately as possible. Um, and in as much as I have a kind of documentary aspect to my own writing, I try to be very faithful to the facts. But in as much as that's not the entirety of the work, um, then the facts just aren't everything. I, I know I, I wrote a poem I was so pleased about in my most um, determinately um, documentary work, which is One Big Self. Um, the uh, first edition was called uh, Prisoners of Louisiana, and the text edition is One Big Self, an Investigation. And I wrote a little poem that I completely made up, but it felt to me like the, as close as I could get to um, describing the loneliness, the profound loneliness of hard time. And that's, but that came from being ab absorbed because you would return there. Um, you didn't live there like Deborah did in, in the vicinity, but you returned there, and people would even say, like, I think the last time, like, you're not coming back, are you? Right. You know, and that, but this was like something maybe you absorbed is, and um, y you you absorbed CD, and then this is what you I think believed. I got that. I definitely got the loneliness, and. Um, I, it was not just because I went there several times. I only went there three. I went to the three prisons three times. We'd spend two or three days at the prison at a time. Um, it was, I mean, I did a kind of immersion on, you know, I read a lot of literature, prison literature, everything from Dostoevsky and Com, uh, Kafka and Gramsci to 
works by convicts, um, so to speak, convict literature. And um, and I watched a lot of prison films, and I just sort of went on a kind of diet of, of that kind of material. Um, but, but just from talking to the inmates that that was that that was the thing I was the mo- I mean there's the boredom of it also but the mm. thing that was the most striking to me was the loneliness I, I, but earlier you said well that's something I recognized which when you said that it's like of course that is a part of the human condition that, that's right that and that that writers as and, and other artists sit with in order to create perhaps but 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 prison being the most extreme prison takes uh, it to the end uh, yes there's no question about it Maybe, maybe old age, housebound old age, also is another example of that. Um, and in fact, old age in in Angola is not the worst thing that could happen to you because their hospice program is so good because they learn how to take care of each other. Whereas most of them were in prison for so long, they never learned to take care of anything else. Mm-hmm. Well, in the, in the, in the book, in in rising, falling, hovering, um, you have uh, this. You you have um, you you kind of break break out of any it's it's it it feels like a cohesive whole as a book and and here you have um, uh, not only uh, the the political with Iraq addressed coming back um, and the lies uh, and, and so political stands like a, like phosphorus. It's an incendiary, an obscurant, an illumination. Just talking about it's not—it's an important psychological weapon. Like these moments of um, very strongly and, and angry, and, and saying outright that you you're you're filled with rage. And then we have um, the relationship chronicled with your son, um, like in a hood, hooded sweatshirt, and mm-hmm. um, uh, singing in, in his room, and, and the feeling that you can't protect, and and having that come across like woven into the the people's children who are going to war. Like there's these constant um, echoes. The friend in in Mexico, I believe, who mm-hmm. who seems to be diagnosed with can- a cancer of mm-hmm. some sort. Um, it's just, and, and, and there's leaps in time where it seems like um, perhaps you and and your husband uh, were in Mexico, and then there's these r- repeated Return journeys trips. there, mm-hmm. yeah, and and then um, and 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 Walmart and Walmex. I was just, um, there's just so many layers to this. Yeah. And a moment of like the arc too, which um, as if like what will survive the twos that that, that come on, and and so this religious com- like component that you were bringing in, I was just really amazed. And 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 coming back to have a moment with um, a, an alligator snapper, which I then realized was a turtle. If, is that true? Oh right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. very ferocious turtle. <laughs> well, it seems like the semis that you were describing going around it were. were equally as ferocious Mm -hmm. but um so i don't mean to make a litany of this this or a summary but this this book of so many uh why why rising falling hovering what was uh, how how did that i can't remember where i got that title but i love that title i'm very i'm very taken with that title (laughs) and i cannot remember how i came by it I think I I, fa- I found it as a caption in a book of old photographs, but I have I had bought a a bunch of these. Um, there was a whole series of photographic books. Um, I can't remember whether they were from Aperture or whether they were from Time or what. I went through those and found this image, and I think that was a caption, but I could never find it again. Oh, that's great. 
but now you've kind of captured it in your own your own way. <laughs> Good, I've definitely taken it. So. Yeah. So here, well, there, there you go. It's out in the world. Um, okay. Well, CD, thank you so much for for being on the program today. Thank you very much. And, and please come back anytime. Okay. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, you've been listening and streaming Living Writers. I'm T Hetzel. Until next time. Like a bird on a wire Like a drunk in a midnight choir I have tried in my way This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, August 6, 2008. From Pacifica Station KPFK in L.A., I'm Aura Bogado. ICE kicks off a new program that asks undocumented people to turn themselves in for self-deportation. ICE is not really offering anybody anything as incentive to turn themselves in, so I don't understand why they think anybody would turn themselves in. We'll hear from Gaza and Hamas's closure of dozens of community-based NGOs. Plus, President Bush wraps up his trip to South Korea to discuss a free trade deal amid continued protests. President Lee can continue to be pro-American, but he has to be much more intuitive to domestic political currents. Those stories and more after this news. I'm Shannon Young with the headlines. Guantanamo Bay's first military commission's trial has ended in a conviction for Osama bin Laden's former driver. Salim Hamdan was found guilty of providing material support for terrorism by a panel of military officers. He was acquitted on one count of conspiracy. Unlike the U.S. criminal justice system, the military commission system allows for the use of secret evidence, hearsay, and statements made under coercion or provoked by interrogation methods considered by most Western countries to be torture. Hamdan faces a life sentence. A federal judge in Washington, D.C. has ordered the unsealing of documents related to the wave of anthrax attacks in the fall of 2001. Najee Mujahid has more on the story. The D.C. District Court ordered the release of about 65 sets of lengthy FBI documents that included affidavits, search warrants, and attachments that the agency had gathered for its case against the alleged anthrax culprit, Bruce Ivins. The court order comes after the apparent suicide of Ivins, the Army scientist that the FBI claims was its primary suspect in the attacks. Ivins died after a medication overdose last week. In a review of the documents, they lay out six reasons as to why he's a suspect and point to possible uncontrollable mental behavior. Some are skeptical of Ivins' culpability, accusing the government of using the dead man as a fall guy in order to close